We're at third week into the series of Overwhelmed, whether you're 15 or 25 or 45 or 65, etc., that all of us have had experiences of feeling overwhelmed at times. And we have looked at the series by really looking at it through four statements. And the first one was, I feel so inadequate. In fact, I asked people in that service to fill out on a communication card areas um, that they feel inadequate, and this is the response I received. Two-thirds of the church. And, I mean, I had tears as I read through some of these. Uh, a handful of people just saying, I feel inadequate in every area of my life. Others uh, talked about finances, job, being a spouse, uh, their kids, etc. And just know that if you fill this out, I've been praying for you and, and I guess, re-praying for you and rereading these. And uh, that was an important uh, uh, beginning part for us in this series because many of us feel inadequate at different points of our lives. And then last week, even though uh, we were all snowed in and we canceled church, um, I just felt like, you know what, I'm in my townhouse in Plymouth, I can't get out, so I'm going to film the sermon that I prepared for. And I sort of, sort of jerry-rigged it. I put my iPhone camera um, on a ladder, had some books there, duct tape and all that, and had preached the sermon, and it's available online. And it was, uh, I feel so anxious. And this morning, I want to continue with this series by looking at the statement, I feel so unhappy. Because I think all of us have felt un, un, uh, unhappy at times. And I want to make sort of an uh, uh, opening statement that if you're a person that, that suffers from depression, like my grandfather did for most of his life, that's not this. This is different. This is those occasional temporary uh, moments of unhappiness that we have, or perhaps periods. But if you're a person that does suffer from depression, I pray that this, this sermon will encourage you and comfort you as well. But as we think about uh, unhappiness, back in 2013, there were a lot of things to be unhappy about. We had the, uh, you probably don't remember, but just the pressure of ISIS. We were in the, we were in the tail end of a recession, uh, also, we had, just the year before, the mass shooting at Sandy Cook Elementary School in Connecticut. And there was like this, this sense that, that, that we had all this pressure that was overwhelming us. And Pharrell Williams wrote and produced and sang a song to kind of take America uh, and their minds off all these uh, pressing matters. And he wrote this song called Happy. And it was for the soundtrack for the, the sequel, uh, Despicable Me. And here is a clip of that. Was that the scene when he was coming down the stairs? We did this thing like this, and then he went like this. <laughs> That's all I got. Amen. All right. But uh, you know, that, that record took off. In fact, that was the record of the year in 2014. It sold 14 million copies. And one uh, music critic said, the reason why, among other things, that was so popular is because there's all these pressing matters that are, that are overwhelming people and finally just kind of take a mental break and just be happy. Clap your hands and be happy. And when it comes to happiness, though, I think for us that we fall into this habit of thinking that actually causes unhappiness. I call it when and then thinking. 
In other words, when I uh, get that one grade on that exam, or if I have that GPA, then I'll be happy. When I graduate from high school, then I'll be happy. When I get into that college, then I'll be happy. It's when and then thinking. When I get married, I'll be happy. When we have children, then we'll be happy. When the children leave the house, then we'll be happy. When the pastor finishes the sermon, then I'll be very happy. It's when and then thinking. And we fall into that. And when those things don't happen, then happiness occurs. It's almost like it, it sort of happens in our, in our minds so quickly, the when and then thinking. And the break out of this unhappiness is dependent upon you. I want you to hear this. You choose happiness. You do. It's your choice. Happiness is a choice. And you don't go looking for happiness. You create it. And when you create it, I think we come across these barriers. I would say four barriers that we're going to see as Paul addresses in Philippians. Four barriers to our happiness. The first one is pain. That's a, that's a barrier to our happiness. The, the second one is uh, pressure. Next one is people. And the last one are problems. Let's talk about that first one, uh, being in pain. It's hard to be happy when you're in pain, Right? We have a, a young woman in our congregation, Tanya Lamprecht, who is in pain most of every day to the point that uh, she is homebound. And once in a while, she's able to make it here, but she's homebound. She has a number of maladies, health conditions in her life. And to see uh, a young woman in her late 20s at home, and I've been to Lamprecht family or their household, and to see her in pain, it breaks my heart. And there's times where I've gone there to serve communion, and I'm like, God, there is, no, there is no reason that a young woman should be homebound. It's absolutely sad. But some of us experience that. That's a, that's, a, that's a barrier to our happiness. Also, people. People of all kinds can make you lose your happiness. They can be irritating, demanding, uncooperative, or they can be arrogant. Also, another barrier to our happiness is pressure. The pressure that we put on ourselves, or perhaps the pressure that maybe a teacher or a professor or a supervisor, or a colleague, or even a spouse puts on us can be a barrier to happiness. And then lastly, problems. We all have problems. We know we're we're, we're very well versed in problems being a barrier to our happiness. In the book of Philippians, Paul addresses this, and I think gives us three habits. He sort of models three habits on how we can break away from this unhappiness and actually clap our hands and be more happy in our lives. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. I'm going to read. And this is, I think, the happiest book in the Bible. It's apropos that we're actually going through this. And if you're new to the Scriptures, this is written by a guy named Paul. And Paul is probably second in terms of having the most influence on Christianity. First would be Jesus Christ, of course. And Paul wrote 13 letters, which comprises most of the New Testament. And a lot of what we know about Christianity today comes from the the pen of Paul and his words to us. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. And I'm going to read through this. It's in your teaching notes. You can follow along uh, with the slides behind me or in your Bible. And I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Let me pray for us before we start. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Your word is living and active. 
We believe that your word speaks to us and, and shapes us. And Holy Spirit, we pray that this, this morning that you would take these words to really speak into our minds and our hearts, to re- really speak into those areas where we live and work and play. And God, I pray that you anoint my words, that you anoint my lips, and that this sermon would go out with clarity and with power and meaning and transformation. That this wouldn't just be another sermon, but God, that this morning, this morning, that there will be a difference for us individually and also collectively. And God, thank you that we can come together in freedom to worship you to come together, to leave our homes and come together to see each other. And perhaps we're new to this morning, and this is our first time here at Maple Grove Covenant. And I pray for those people as well. I pray for others who've been here for perhaps a handful of years, and as they come together to connect, and also to come together to worship. And we give you praise in Christ's name. We pray. Everybody said? All right, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that's happened to me here is help to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence. I just love this part. And boldly speak God's message without fear. It's like Paul being in prison has been a catalyst for people to actually go out and share their faith. And a lot of you, on your, your communication cards, the area that you actually feel inadequate is actually in sharing your faith. I couldn't believe how many people uh, they feel inadequate and they want to share their faith. And it, was, it actually impacted me so much. And I, I believe God spoke to me through that, uh, reading those communication cards, that I'm actually going to change the sermon series I had planned for the fall and actually do it on how to share your faith with your coworkers and your neighbors. So Paul says right here that people have actually have boldness and confidence as a result of his imprisonment. It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, he says. But others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I have a, I've been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my, claim, my chains more painful to me. But that doesn't matter, he says. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way, so I rejoice. And I will continue to rejoice, for I know that as, as you pray for me and the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. And lastly, verse 20, For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. So let's break this down, because what Paul is saying here in this letter to the church of Philippi is that he is saying you can be happy no matter what happens to your life. That's what he's saying. And he models three habits to bring about more happiness in our lives. The first one is this. I can be happy, your teaching notes fill this in, I can be happy if I look at problems from God's viewpoint. I can be happy if I look at problems from God's viewpoint. Happy people have a larger perspective. Happy people have a much more expansive worldview when it comes to the problems of their lives. They see things from God's perspective. Not every single time, but a lot of time. I found that. And when you don't see things from God's view, and when I don't see things, things from God's view, I get unhappy, I get frustrated, I get irritated. 
And the truth is that no matter what happens in your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, the sin, the mistakes, the mess-ups, no matter what happens in your life, God can take all of that and he actually can carry out the plan that he has for your life. So for us, when we have problems in life, actually to see it from God's viewpoint that somehow he's going to work all this out in some way that's beyond me, but to actually see it from God's viewpoint, to have his eyes. In fact, Paul says this. He says this in verse 12. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that's happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. And he's in prison. See, Paul's dream was to preach in Rome. Because Rome was the center of the universe. It was the capital of the Roman Empire. The most important city in the entire world. And in fact, Luke in the book of Acts calls it the ends of the earth. And if we were to do a church plant back in the first century, we would have done a church plant, probably a number of them, in Rome because it was a very strategic city. Very important city. Very prominent. And Paul had this dream to actually go to Rome and, and do sort of like a Billy Graham crusade in the famous Roman Colosseum and to share the good news, to share the gospel with people in that Colosseum where hundreds, maybe thousands, would come to Christ. That was Paul's plan. That was his dream. And God says, nope. I got a different plan for you. You're going to be in prison, Paul. And a little bit of a detour is that he's imprisoned. And, but not only is he a prisoner, he's a royal prisoner. And he has the chance to talk to all kinds of people that he wouldn't normally talk to. And he's chained to a royal palace guard. Let's take a look at a couple of pictures of the prison that we believe that Paul was actually in. Let's go to the next one. And we believe that's where Paul was. He spent two years there, chained to a royal palace guard. And scholars believe they change those guards every four hours. So six guards a day. And I'm sure some of them uh, duplicated, but one scholar estimates that probably over, over uh, two years of being imprisoned in Rome, Paul probably had the opportunity, because who Paul is, he's going to share the gospel with everybody. That's who he is. Probably had a chance to share the gospel with 3,000 different palace guards. Okay? He would not otherwise had that chance. And these were very prominent royal palace guards. And in fact, in his imprisonment and having this opportunity, there is two significant results. I want you to write this down. Two things happen as a result of him being imprisoned there. Number one, two years after his imprisonment, we actually see the parts of the family of, this, of, of Caesar, of Nero, actually come to Christ part of Caesar's family. And Nero is pretty mean. He's a vicious dude. And yet parts of his family come to Christ because Paul has access to the royal palace because of these guards. Another significant result of this is the fact of what he writes because Paul is one of those guys, you know people like this, they can't sit still? Yeah, you might be sitting next to them. They're always on the move. They're, they're fidgety. Paul's like that. He's traveling. He, he can't sit still after him. He's, God's using him. He's planting churches. But finally, for two years, he's got to sit down. He's stationary. He really can't go anywhere. And what's he, what he does, he writes really next to the Gospels, the backbone of the New Testament. He writes Romans. He writes First and Second Corinthians. He writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians. He writes First and Second Thessalonians. I mean, just this outpouring and think about all the people over the centuries of time who have read these books that came out of that prison cell in Rome that, whose lives have been changed. 
where his words were used in a way in a gospel message by churches over the millennia and people who have come to Christ. It's like, Paul, you have this plan to like preach in this call, see him. That's a really good plan, but I have a better plan. You're going to be imprisoned, but more people are going to be reached as a result of your imprisonment. And so many times we see in our problems, all we see is the problem. And we don't see it from God's viewpoint that he has a better, he's got a bigger vision for our, our problems and what we're going through. So right now, what I want you to do is think about a problem that you have. You're like, man, I got like 10. Which one should I pick? Okay, I want you to think of just one problem. Do you have it? Think about one problem that you have right now. I want you to bow your heads and say this prayer in your heart. God, help me to see this problem with your eyes. God, help me to see this problem from your viewpoint. Help me to see this problem with hope and faith and courage. Amen. All right, next. Not only uh, can we be happy by looking at problems from God's viewpoint, but also that we can be happy by not allowing others to control our attitude. And, And Paul outlines that in verse 15 of Philippians chapter 1. He says this, It's true that some people are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry. Okay? Right there in verse 15, that word rivalry, I'd like you to circle that word in your teaching notes. It actually means quarrelsome. The original language, it means quarrelsome. It means people that are agitators. These are people that like to criticize. And what Paul is saying, there's these two, kind, two groups of people in verses 15 and 17. This first group are critics. And they're criticizing Paul. And they, in fact, they, they want to engage in debate with those that are standing up for him. And there's few things that stop our happiness or circumvent our happiness than critics, than being criticized. When you're criticized at work or by friends or family or neighbors, I mean, your stomach begins to churn, doesn't it? And maybe you've been criticized recently, and it just hurts. Why does it hurt? Because we want everybody to like us. It's our human default. We want everybody to approve of us. We want everyone to be our fans. But Paul says here, um, I can be happy by not allowing others to control my attitude. And that we don't need other people's approval. You don't need other people's um, approval in terms of your happiness. You don't need to give people permission for you to be happy. You're as happy as you choose to be. And don't allow people to dictate your approval. And this was uh, something that I struggled with uh, early on in my ministry. That when it came to my preaching or my ministry in my life, it seemed so often I was seeking the approval of all people. And there would always be invariably some people that, I, that didn't like me, and I would try so hard to, to win them over. And I found that that was useless. And, and after a while, they began to control my attitude. Their disapproval, or perhaps just simply their silence, I read as disapproval, and it really affected my attitude. It affected my happiness. I was unhappy during those times. I went and saw a good friend of mine who was a pastor and a mentor, and I, I shared with him what was going on. And he said this to me, and I still ex- remember exactly where I was, when I was, and probably what I was eating too. And he said this, Craig, when you walk in a room, there's going to be a third of the people there that, that love you no matter what you do. 
They're going to approve of you. They're going to clap for you no matter what. There's going to be another third that are neutral. You know, they, they'll be in the neutral group. And there's another third that are, are, are going to disapprove of you of no matter what you do. And once he said that, it liberated me. It freed me. That, that there's always going to be a group that, that are not going to approve of you. And it liberated me to allow my happiness to come out and not allow those people to control my attitude because some people are simply cranky, quarrelsome, and they criticize you whatever you do. There's, there's another group of people, not just critics, but Paul talks about them in verse 17. Those others who others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ, they preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. Underline that in your, your teaching notes. My, make my chains more painful to me. These are conspirators. These are enemies of Paul. As Paul's in prison, they're going around and really trying to make things worse about his ministry. And in fact, the most effective tool of conspirators and enemies in our lives is gossip. They want to gossip about us. They want to slander us. And that's exactly what they were doing to Paul. And Paul said, these guys are enemies and they're making my chains even more painful. And you and I have those people in our lives. You may have done something a number of years ago, a mess up, and, and God has forgiven you. And yet you got people in your life who want to remind you of that and remind you that you did that. And they, they want to hold you back. Meanwhile, you're trying to get on with your life. And they gossip about that. And they slander you about that incident that happened a number of years ago or even a few months ago. They're enemies. They want to add to our pain. I love what the, the book of uh, Proverbs says. And it's a paraphrase for me is that gossipers are like emotional terrorists. It's exactly what they are. They're emotional terrorists. But you don't need to give them permission to dictate your happiness. That's exactly what Paul says here. You see it in verse 18. What does he say? But that doesn't matter. Right there. If you get anything from this sermon, get that phrase. But that doesn't matter. In other words, he's saying the critics and the conspirators are not going to control my attitude. They're not going to control my happiness. But that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way, so I rejoice. In other words, he says, I'm clapping my hands and I'm singing happy. I rejoice. And I will continue to be happy. I will continue to rejoice. He says, these people may be doing all these things to me, but it doesn't matter. What I'm going to do is focus on Christ. I'm going to focus on Christ and continue to be happy. I'm not going to allow anyone to steal my happiness. The next habit that we see Paul model here in the book of Philippians is this. I can be happy by focusing, focusing on my purpose, not my problems. Let's take a look at a picture of, of Paul. This is a, a rendition of Paul. He's old in age when he's in prison in Rome, by the way. He's near the end of his life. He is far away from home. He's in Rome, and he's away from his ministry. He's away from sharing the gospel and traveling, and he's awaiting death by execution. That's why, one of the reasons why he is actually chained to the royal palace guards. And these aren't, aren't exactly happy times. I mean, he's been stripped of a lot of things. Take, his friends have been taken away, his freedom, his ministry to travel, and even his privacy. Can you, you imagine that? Every second of every hour of every day for two years, he's chained to some royal palace guard. 
His privacy has been stripped. And yet, he remains happy. Because the one thing they can't take away from him is how he responds. They can do all this stuff to him. But the way they can't do is take away his, his choice or the way he wants to, that he can respond. It reminds me of the famous author, Viktor Frankl. He writes in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, about his horrific experience in the Nazi concentration camps in World War II. He was spending several months in the, the camp of Dachau, and most of his family were gassed and killed. He describes in his book this one time where he and others were standing right in front of the Gestapo, and they were in a line, and they were stripped of their clothes, absolute naked. They took his wedding ring away, and he's standing there with these other prisoners. And Frankel writes in his book, it was right there that I realized that they can take everything away from me, but they can't take away how I can respond. It was remarkable. And how Frank will respond. And after he survived the Holocaust and wrote a number of books and went on lectures too in terms of his response. We can't control what people do to us. We can't control what people say to us. But we can control how we respond. And how we respond makes a big difference. And I love Paul's response, verses 20 and 21. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, that, I'll never, that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For me, excuse me, for to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. What a response. And that's our third point. I can be happy if I focus on my purpose, not on my problems. And that's exactly what Paul does, is that he focuses on his purpose. I mean, he has, a, he has a plan. He has a purpose for living. What's your purpose? And not only that, Paul has a purpose for dying too. You know, not, he doesn't have a plan and a purpose for living. He also has a purpose for dying. And his purpose is focused purely on Christ. That's exactly what he's saying. His purpose on earth is to serve God by serving people. So when he says that, that I'm focusing on Christ— for me, living means living for Christ. What he's saying through that is that I'm going to serve people. I'm going to love on people. Okay, when he says, for me, living means living for Christ. It means serving people. And that's true happiness. I want you to catch that. If you want to be happy, serve people. Give away of your time, of your uh, finances, and really make a difference in the lives of people. That's true happiness. Because our culture, they, our culture gives you the lie and me the lie. That true happiness comes from self-gratification. That's about power and pleasures. It's about sex, status. It's about all these different things. It's about money, having enough, a lot of money. Or maybe that, uh, that happiness really comes from having success or accomplishments. Those don't last long enough. And what, and what Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It, it's It's different. Our culture has it backwards. That true happiness comes from self-sacrifice in the way of Jesus Christ, of actually serving other people. And if you're here this morning and you're not engaged in any ministry and you're not engaged in any kind of serving, I want you to, to sign up for something. And, and, and not just that, you know, we're, we're, like we're trying to fill holes. We're not. 
We want people serving for a number of reasons, but among them is for you. You're going to be really happy. You're going to experience a happiness in your life that you don't know otherwise. I really believe that. And the question I was asking myself is this, that, that last fill in the blank. I'd like everybody to pull out your teaching notes, even if you haven't been filling them out. Pull that out. And on the bottom it says, for, for me, living, living means living for blank. How would you fill that in? Honestly. How would your friends fill that in for you if they were to make an observation about you and your life? How would my friends, how would my family fill that in for me? For me, living means living for, is it entertainment? Living means living for running or biking or golf or basketball. For me, living means living for success. What is it? And Paul says, no. No, living means living for Christ. And how you fill in that last blank will determine your happiness. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much that, that we can turn to your word that's timeless and find these habits modeled by Paul for us to experience happiness in our lives. And our world, our culture, as soon as we leave this building this morning, sends us, barrages us with messages about happiness. Help us to keep our focus on Christ. That's our purpose. In doing so, serving those around us, the lost, the le- the lost, the Uh, least, and the lonely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.